Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show for Friday, the 31st of March. It is the end of March, finally, and the Serafin family is on the road. And we've got the Kyle Serafin Show on the road with us. So I sent the boys a picture of what this looks like. I've got Suspendable Steve with me. So he's going to be uh, weighing in. He brought us some brand news, brand new news, new news that's being broken um, this morning. It'll be out on his Twitter feed and we'll be retweeting it. So you can go look for that. We'll, you'll get a, your fresh taste of it and our reactions to it as well. A um, lot of weird stuff going on this week. Hopefully you got a chance to listen to our very long three plus hour interview with Steve Baker. I only talk to people named Steve these days, I guess. I don't know why that is, but I got a lot of Steve's in my orbit. Um, Steve, thanks for joining me. Other Steve, many Steve's. We're working the same microphone today. Yeah, man. I, I kind of feel like my, my tech caught up. Maybe it's yesterday's technology today. That's very Bureau of you. People don't know that that's the uh, that's the motto of the, the FBI's IT department. It's yesterday's technology tomorrow. So you're doing it today. I guess you're actually ahead of the FBI at that point. Yeah, I'm, I'm high speed, low drag. I've got contacts in places that uh, they didn't even know. That's it. Well, let's do a quick little uh, promotion for our sponsor, and I hope you don't mind, but we're going to talk about Patriot Coolers and PatriotCoolers.com. Even on the road, I got to bring it up. I've got my Patriot cooler with me right now. Hot or cold tumblers. This is the 30 ounce full of ice and water. Keep me hydrated. I'm in the desert right now. Producer Phil's got his with his uh, American flag on there. There's a lot of cool designs you guys can get into. They've got the spill resistant. This is the spill proof. I actually think it is spill proof. Should we do Should we do a test? Pretty sure. No spill. Um, really, really good products. Really fair price. They, uh, they give their, a little bit of their proceeds to disabled vets, so you can do it, support that cause. You're supporting the Kyle Serafin Show, and you can use promo code KYLE, K-Y-L-E, again, K-Y-L-E for 10% off. If you do shipping over 50 bucks is free. Um, can't go wrong. They've got really good tumblers too, or um, actual coolers, soft-sided, hard-sided, all those things. I've got the, the backpack with me on my road trip. I'm driving from Arizona to Texas. And I've got some uh, snacks that I don't want to melt in there. So um, check out Patriot Coolers, patriotcoolers.com. We'll actually tag them on this one. They're on um, they're on Twitter, and I think they're going to start on Truth. I told them, time to get with it, folks. Time to get on all the social media. Um, we thank them for their support so far. And Steve, we're going to dig into a whole host of topics. And what I want to entitle this episode, I think is something to the effect of Miss Lippy strikes again. That was my initial idea. Miss Lippy being the Billy Madison character uh, who was teaching kindergarten. But it's almost something dumber than that. Uh, we're in the we're in this sort of preschool world where the opposite is true. It's like an opposites day when you were a little kid. I'm going to run through a bunch of these things to talk about it. Do you want to break your news first? Or do you want to hold that for the end? Because you said you want oh. to call it. I think we got some heavy topics where we might need to cleanse our palate at the end. So uh, let, let's hold on okay, yeah. for a bit. I, the, the world is pretty messed up in so many ways. So let's start with a couple things. All right. We're going to talk about a video, uh, a little piece that uh, Tucker Carlson did. And it's going to actually tie into a broader theme of whatever the left says, the opposite is the case. If they act like trans people are the most important thing in the world. What they are trying to do is negate Christianity. That was Tucker's point. There's a, a thing that uh, Stephen Crowder did on uh, Thursday. 
And that was actually really illuminating to me. It was another opposite. And then I listened to an Adam Carolla podcast talking about self-esteem and that was the opposite. So we have at least three examples this week of like major uh, influential figures on the right that I've listened to that have pointed out really significant opposites. And I think you'll be able to weigh in and know that those are the case. Phil, do you have our Tucker video? I want to play it and then we're going to have a quick discussion on that. But I think that is the theme so far is that whatever they lay out, they being the left, the opposite is the case. Yeah, let's play it. It was just last week that we noticed that parts of the transgender movement seem to be getting militant and possibly dangerous. We did a whole segment about it on Thursday night. That segment was sparred by an NPR segment we had heard and never expected to hear. NPR is always, as a matter of editorial policy, completely opposed the civilian ownership of firearms, with the possible exception of maybe IRS agents. Yet here suddenly was that very same station, National Public Radio, positively urging trans people to buy guns, as many guns as possible, and if necessary, to use them. The world is dangerous, explained one trans gun owner. You have to be dangerous back. And that seems strange to us. Is the United States really a dangerous place for trans people? Well, West Baltimore is dangerous. You could easily get murdered there. But if you're trans in this country, obviously there are many downsides, but there do appear to be some benefits. It's a lot easier to get into Harvard, for example. It's definitely easier to get a job at Citibank or in the Biden White House. If you're transgender can so much as fly a kite, the Pentagon will happily make you an F-35 pilot just so Hollywood can make a movie about it. Identifying as trans, whatever, again, its downsides, does convey status in this country, which is why so many young people now do. Not a lot of 19-year-olds are pretending to be car mechanics or linemen for a regional power company in eastern Ohio, but plenty of college freshmen do pretend to be members of the opposite sex. And why wouldn't they? The people in charge despise working-class whites, but they venerate the trans community. People are just responding to incentives. It's rational in a way. But that does not explain the anger that we heard in that NPR segment. Why are some trans people so angry and why do they seem to be mad specifically at traditional Christians? We can't think of any trans person who's ever been murdered by a pastor. As far as we know, that has never happened. So it's not an actual threat of violence from Christians that's inspiring some trans people to buy AR-15s. No, it's, it's gotta be more fundamental than that, and it is. The trans movement is the mirror image of Christianity and therefore its natural enemy. In Christianity, the price of admission is admitting that you're not God. Christians openly concede that they have no real power over anything and for that matter, very little personal virtue. They will tell you to your face that they are sinful and helpless and basically absurd. They're not embarrassed about any of this. They brag about it. That saved a wretch like me goes the most famous Christian hymn ever written in English. The trans movement takes the opposite view. Trans ideology claims dominion over nature itself. We can change the identity we were born with, they will tell you with wild-eyed certainty. Christians can never agree with this statement because these are powers they believe God alone possesses. All right, I think that's exactly what we want to talk about right there. So the claim is the opposite, and therefore it's antithetical to Christian views, which is uh, at least a vast majority of what this country is made up of. What do you think about that one, Steve? I think it's kind of consistent with uh, the accusation uh, that anytime the left throws out some sort of accusation against their political enemies, it's always something that they're doing. It's it's always the opposite. 
So they're, they're saying, you know, you uh, you ch- you cheated in the election this way. Uh, well, they were cheating that way or you want it, it's just very consistent that they they look inward and then project outward to what they want. And I, I think that the Tucker makes a really good point there, especially towards the end when he he talked about having dominion over reality. Uh, it, we always hear this my truth. Well, if if you accept the premise that there is a, a my truth, you can certainly shape the truth the way you want. There's, I think you and I can agree there's only the truth and you really can't shape that anyway. It's just is what it is. Uh, but certainly when you hear the left talk about their truth, my truth, uh, they have control over that and it can change on, on the whim. They can feel like something one day and something different the next day. And uh, immediately we're all supposed to accept that new truth truth and reality as they've uh, they've concocted. Yeah, that's the sort of postmodernist attitude about things, right? Is that uh, that there's a subjective sense of reality and everybody's version of it is equally of value. Uh, but then nobody's truth can be of value because especially when they come in conflict, unless they go against this hierarchical order. So his his whole point that there is an opposite um, belief, one being that essentially that the human being is God and therefore can define all reality as needed, but only certain people get to do that, right? I mean, that's that's really what's going on. You mentioned projection. Projection is a is a legitimate psychological concept. That's when you actually do see the things that are your own flaws and you put them on somebody else and you make them an, an external tormentor. Um, my my wife has been a guilt. She's she's been um, the victim of a lot of that from friends of hers who got mad. Leftists, it turns out, um, when we got married. It was one of the things that she looked out and 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 they were projecting all of their own iniquities on her. And she's one of the nicest people that there is. Um, she's nicer than I am by a lot. <laughs> it's like, you know, probably, probably as we all hope, you want to marry someone that's somewhat better than you and, and you strive to be a better person as a man, at least. And uh, anyway, this is just an interesting leftist concept that they do that. Yeah, I think even just we, we're talking about family, you're talking about basic parental concepts. I was having to about if, if when we're old and gray, if one of our boys comes to the house with the grandkids and he's a hundred pounds overweight, would we be good parents and loving parents to say, you look great, fantastic to see you? I think the the left would say, yeah, you got to affirm that. That's body positivity. Whereas you and I would say, no, that's destructive to our child. We should say, you've never looked worse. You need to get your butt in the gym and consider eating a vegetable every now and then. Uh, again, we're back to the, the opposite. And I think that's sort of guided by our worldview uh, versus theirs. So that segues very nicely into something that I saw on Steven Crowder. I don't watch Steven Crowder stuff all that much. I like Steven Crowder. I've always found him to be articulate. And I think that he, uh, he hammers home some interesting points, but one of the discussions that they had on his show on Thursday, and I had to share it with my wife. Once I, I, I see certain things, I go like, oh man, that's inherently true. And he's a funny guy, no doubt. Right. So he does this whole bit where they play this video. He's got the Hodge twins on there too. And I like them. Um, he does a video where this woman, she's kind of weird and chunky, um, not bad looking, but she's, you know, she's not a smoke show that anybody is going to, you know, drop everything and, and run after. And I only say that because the first thing she says is she says in this really awful, like you can just, you know, you can hear it. If I had the sound mixer right now, I do the AOC pitch shift, but she's going like, you know, I'm perfect the way I am. And I was built this way. Any man, you know, who would deserve me would accept me because I'm flawless as as God made me. And that is also the opposite of the way that we look at the world because we're all flawed and sinful. 
once again, this is very antithetical to Christianity, but it's also really funny because it's the opposite of the way that men are portrayed. Imagine if you went in to a potential relationship saying, I'm flawless and perfect the way that I am, and nobody can change me, and anybody that deserves me would accept me as I am. I mean, it, that's not marketable. You would man. be mansplaining, first of all. I think you'd be, be lonely for that. You'd be, you'd be all by yourself because yes. even even if you're married, your wife is not going to put up with that. Um, even if they they vowed to be with you until death do you part, uh, that might be one of those things where she straightens you out pretty clearly, right? I mean, like that just it doesn't fly as a man. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, if you look to somebody running for political office. Um, they're as close as you get to that because they're trying to make themselves be flawless. They're perfect. I alone can be your senator because I have all these immutable characteristics and and I'm separate. That's why I think one of the most uh, revelatory things I heard from listening to some of these people that are in, in politics, they said, you got to look to the spouse because they're going to be able to hold that ego in check. If it's a strong spouse who's not maybe as equally ambitious or has their eyes on something else, um, but is just supporting their their better half, um, that maybe that politician has a chance to not lose their soul. Otherwise, you're just going down this dark path of I'm perfect and I should lord over all my constituents. So when I saw this woman doing this piece, and they showed a couple of different women doing it, um, you know, that was the 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 bit that that. Crowder opened up his show with, it didn't make me think like, oh, what a terrible person this woman is, right? Because that's that's not what's going on here. And I don't mean that to be the case. What is interesting is what a terrible ideology has been has been allowing this woman to believe that that is a way. Oh, by the way, she had a hype man, which is, I don't know if he was gay or her partner or what, but there was another dude that it would like cut away to on a couch and she would go, you know, I'm perfect the way I am. And he would go, fact. You know, and then she'd be like, I'm, you know, just how God made me is perfect and amazing or whatever. And he would go fact. And it's like, uh, no, that's not a fact. Uh, actually, we're all made pretty imperfectly. That's the nature of our our life. And it's going to it's going to go next into this thing that I heard from Corolla, which I think as well, with our spending. That is not a marketable position to hold. I'm perfect as I am, and I don't need to make myself any better. Like self-improvement is the thing that we spend most of our lives doing, whether it be education, which is a leftist thing, right? Like the left loves education, Um, whether it be fitness, like nobody wants somebody that's sloppy and out of shape. You want people that are bettering themselves and bettering their intellect and bettering all the different parts of their facets, including their spirituality, their humility, which I think is sorely lacking right now. But all these things make her a female that nobody is going to want. And so she's over here self-affirming this thing that is obviously untrue. And then the sad thing is, is that she ends up lonely because of it. And and men know instinctively you can't get away with that. That's what I meant more, moreover. Men can't get away with it because if you try to tell that to a woman, they're going to walk on to the next guy who's humble, capable, you know, bring something to the table and also is willing to improve. When, because I think Phil and, and you and I would all agree, like if our wife tells us to do something and we don't necessarily want to do it, we go like, that's, that's part of the cost of doing business here. Even when she may not be 100% right, She's not wrong. So what do I care? Like that's that's pouring of yourself to become a better person. You're willing to accept this sort of thing. And uh, if you were to just go like, no, I'm perfect. I'm not going to mow the lawn. The lawn's fine as it is. Like that's how God made it. Like that's not going to fly. You're going to be a lonely dude. Uh, she's going to pick up and leave and find somebody who will mow the lawn and take care of things. I, I think it's just so destructive to just your life force or whatever. I I remember I... um 
my, my grandfather was just a big voracious reader, always trying to learn things. And uh, towards the end of his life, I remember I read a book and I brought it to him and I said, Hey, pop, I really think you'd like this. And he's was like, nah, you know, I, I think I'm done reading. And that was just mind blowing to me. Cause I was like, okay, he's now come to the conclusion that he's, he's done growing as a person. And I don't think he's hanging on for very long after that. And it was not very long before he passed. And I think as, as soon as you give up the momentum there on just always driving forward and progressing in yourself in, in intellectually and spiritually and physically, anything, um, you, you just, you're going to waste away. Yeah. That's an interesting thought. And I think it's, uh, I think it's true through like that. That's what Western society is built on, right? The 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 march of progress forward. It's interesting that the the people on the left have referred to themselves as progressives, when in a lot of ways the things they're doing are very regressive. They are not building something that's better. They're building something that's sadder, and uh, and it's it's obviously having bad consequences, which is going to lead to this this other little this, this thought that I was I'm driving through the middle of uh, the desert in New Mexico, and I've got the radio, you know, I run out of radio signal wherever I was. So I moved to the podcast and I've got the, uh, the Dr. Drew, the Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew show, which is about half an hour. And if you don't listen to that, um, it's definitely, it's, it's an uplifting moment to listen to two people that are very intelligent. One of whom is very educated and one of whom is not, but has a lot of street smarts, right? Adam is, he's got a lot of street smarts and experience and he's very successful in what he does. And he's also hilarious. So he always comes in with his like anger. And then Drew kind of always co-signs it. I, I mean, I've been listening to Loveline when I was a teenager. So this goes back 25 years. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like nostalgic for me, but I hear Adam get into this thing about self-esteem. And he said, when in 2006, he walked into the studio and he was yelling at Dr. Drew and whoever he was with about this thing that was called the something fuzzy wubby or something like, I don't even know what the name of the cartoon was. And it obviously was not my generation. I was already out of college by then. Uh, but he said, this is going to be a problem. And the kids who were listening to it um, got this song that was called uh, You're the Coolest. And You're the Coolest is a horrible song. So you guys could just go listen to, to Drew and Adam talking about it on his podcast from, I think, Wednesday. Uh, go listen to that if you want, if you want to hear the song. But the reflection they had was about self-esteem and the self-esteem movement, which I probably am guessing you heard about in maybe middle school or high school, kind of, right? It was like everybody was trying to build the self-esteem. Yep. That was, that right. was the was way, that, was that was the way we, we got rid of, I remember when they got rid of dodgeball and that was the middle school because that was a self-esteem killer. <laughs> we did, we played dodgeball in high school and then we tried to hurt each other. Um, <laughs> so the, 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 the inevitable lesson that came out of the self-esteem movement, which was obviously a left leaning sort of sensibility was um, we need to take care of people with low self-esteem because they're the ones doing the bad thing. They're the ones that are doing the robberies, the ones that murders. They're the ones that are feeling certain things. They're not, uh, you know, living up to their potential. And if it was only if they had a better self esteem, they wouldn't do these awful things to other people. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, I think. I mean, and we'll, we'll get into the, this sort of subject matter soon. Uh, I mean, that was Columbine. That was those kids right. were picked on and brutalized, and and they had they they sought the, the darkest option for themselves because their self esteem had been so uh, abused. Exactly. Yes. So so we attributed it it was it was society's fault for not helping them build up their self esteem. They didn't feel like they had enough worth, and that's why they did these horrible things. Adam flipped it on his head. I've never heard anyone say it this way, but it was it was uh, 
kind of a revolutionary thought experiment when I was going, he goes, death row is full of people that have the highest self-esteem in the world because how high would your self-esteem have to be? How, how much would you have to think of yourself to be able to kill somebody else and take their life? People with low self-esteem are busy trying to figure out how to make themselves be better, which is essentially the opposite of the way it was always sold to me. And I think that is true. I think that you have to be a raging narcissist in some ways to go and think, I'm so important. I need this so much more than the other person. I'm going to put a gun in somebody's face at a store and take what they have, take the the, the cash out of the register. I would have to be uh, you know, someone who really loves myself, thinks very highly of myself to go and take somebody else's life and not let them be able to progress further. And so I never heard it said that way before, but it lined up with all these three things. It was, you know, three things in two days that have all been the same. And it's the opposite of what was sold. It's exactly backwards. And it leads us to a lot of the evil that's going on in this country. And, uh, and I think we can talk about, a we can do a tactical sort of, uh, dismantlement or after action of the shooting that happened in Tennessee this week. Um, but the way that you get there is the self-esteem movement is the, my truth is the truth. That's most important is the, um, you know, trans people who can define themselves as God and, and subjectively redistribute the, the reality that everyone else has to deal with all those things kind of, they're all backwards. And they lead people to do things that are backwards, which is to say, go and attack children who are the least likely to cause problems for anybody. Like children, I mean, except for their parents, maybe, but children are the reason why we do almost anything in this society. That's the thing that we protect and defend. I think everybody sort of innately knows that. So that's that's backwards too. I, I think that the the plumb line here that's that's missing in all those scenarios is humility. So I think the the difference between somebody who has very high self-esteem and is out of control uh, megalomaniac and a person who's confident, which is when you look to that example and say, well, that's what I want my son to be. Is that confident? It's somebody who's been humbled, which is why I have a lot of respect for these guys who were in like the mixed martial arts. Uh, they're very confident. They've, they know that their abilities to, to actually do damage on somebody and that they'll be safe if they are ever confronted with violence. But that came from getting choked out a million times in the gym. They've been humbled before. Um, and I don't think because we're so scared about damaging people's uh, self-esteem, they've never been humbled. And they just, that ego continues to grow and it's never been, had a chance to be deflated and brought back to a normal size. I sort of um, have been reflecting that it's a, it's an imbalance. It's a, it's a, um, it's a, a mismatch between people's self-estimation of their worth and their actual worth. So self-esteem versus what society's esteem of them is. And when those things are in conflict with each other, and you mentioned somebody in mixed martial arts, so let's let's evaluate that. Somebody who has a high degree of skill to be able to defend themselves, and they walk around and they project that image, and people give them that same credibility when they see them because they're built a certain way. They've, you know, they've handled themselves. They, they carry themselves in a way like that. And, and nobody really wants to mess with that guy. You can see like, nobody's going to pick a fight with Joe Rogan, a crazy no. person, right? But Joe Rogan has the highest and the hardest leg kick recorded on the, one of these little forceometer things uh, in Vegas. And unless you're a complete fool, you can see that when you look at the man, because the man carries himself in a certain way. Yep. And you can tell people like Tim Kennedy, who does the sheepdog response and teaches law enforcement, you know, classes about how to to handle things? He's you know special forces, uh, uh, you know, former operator. You know, when you meet guys like that, and I've met a bunch, and I and I usually can pick up on it. They carry themselves a certain way, and then we we believe that they are the same thing. 
They don't have to tell us what their worth is. We already know. But when you are the opposite of that, you see like, for, you know, the classic like 80s, 90s slacker, um, sort of the Gen X uh, example of the dude who's, you know, the uh, what is it? The Jay and Silent Bob types, right? Like they're they're kind of scruffy. They're kind of hunched over. They're pro- they're they're not carrying themselves in a way. They're not really humble either. They're kind of just jerks about something. They're projecting sort of like a weakness. And but they evaluate themselves really high because you know, they're fighting the man or whatever the heck it was. That was the, that was the way I was raised. Like the slackers were always pushing back against whatever the standard was. Uh, now the, the slackers are, are angry that anyone doesn't think really, really highly of them. And they haven't done the thing to deserve that thing that people would think highly of. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's how you get this loud, uh, very loud presence of hundreds and hundreds of people. They're just going to storm the Tennessee Capitol uh, because their voice needs to be uh prioritized in front of the will of the electorate i mean look i'm, I'm not opposed to you know first amendment you and i are obviously so, both very supportive of that uh, if you want to protest you could do it that doesn't entitle you to storm through that that building much like we saw on january 6th there was supposed to be uh peaceful protest out front let your voice be heard the individuals that that thought that uh they were a special person and and went in um you know under those suspicious circumstances where they're just you know there's violence uh, that's somebody who uh who needed to have their their ego maybe put in check a little, a little earlier on than that i saw a picture of um of what they call the die-in which is like my most i, I despise that term and that and that uh whatever that technique being used by these people to to communicate something so that they all basically go in and then they just lay down on the floor i, I cannot think of a my two-year-old does that by the way my two-year-old regularly does a die-in whenever yeah. i go uh he says you know can i have ice cream he'll be like ice cream and i'll be like there's no more ice cream and then he'll just go oh and he'll just fall to the floor and just lay there like something's gonna happen and i go get up you turd you know like i call him a turd and he knows he's a turd and then he gets up and then now he's better and he's two it's these are one step above holding your breath to get your way. It's the same thing. It's literally <laughs> the same thing. You are laying on the floor and flopping like a like a child throwing a tantrum. So they came into the Texas Capitol and did this. And imagine the humility that would have been uh, that would have been meted out on these people if strong Texas state uh, troopers, you know, the DPS troopers, rolled in there wearing body armor with their their holstered pistols and their. Uh, you know, and 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 their uniforms on, and just grab the two of them by the ankles and just like pull them into a pile and just show them what a die-in looks like. Make a mass grave of these idiots that are flopping around on the ground. How many? How far would they have to pull them across the linoleum? You know, about a dozen of them get stacked on top of each other in a corner, just throwing them into a room. Just we're done with you. Get out of the way. You know, you had your First Amendment ability to to do a die-in, but now we got to walk across these floors, and you don't get to own the floors. These are the people's floors, and just dragging them. You know, you'd see hands just. <clears throat> making the squeaking noise across the, uh, the, the polished tile, that would, that would have been the humility that should have happened. And, and honestly, there's supposed to be consequences when you do things like civil disobedience, right? People used to go to jail because they would say, I'm going to do a sit-in at a lunch counter and they would take you out for trespassing and you would go sit in jail for the night or two until somebody came and bailed you out. The consequences don't exist anymore. So we're getting all of the, uh, the drama and all of the ridiculous like social media uh, dopamine hit and we're not getting any of the humility that's supposed to come with it as well, because if you go out there and do something like that, um, and I think you and I have talked about this as well, uh, when we when we do a whistleblower activity, we bring something to the forefront, and then if it's not received or more more worth, like when the when the bureau denies it, 
after some period of time, you kind of go like, am I a psychopath? Did I miss the boat? And you always have to have that moment of self-doubt. If not, you are a psychopath. Like you, you've you've lost touch with what's going on in reality. And because we have that that check, the only thing that happens is like the beard is another thing that's terrible. So then we're able to re-expose it and we're reaffirmed that we're doing the right thing. Um, these people are not getting any of the ego check where where they have to at least question themselves. Like, am I am I the bad guy here? Am I the 50 people taking up space in the Texas Capitol, like just flopping around like toddlers? Um, but instead they're being, re- you know, rewarded with social media and, and even the mainstream media, like praising them and talking about how the real victim of a shooting were three children. And it was it four, four adults or three and three, I think three and three, you know, people were killed and they, they were doing nothing. They were literally going to a Christian school and some maniac came in with, and decided to shoot them, um, because of because of her own issues, my understanding is it's a biological female, and this is the other ridiculous moment where we're bending history right now, but a biological female who was taking male hormones, didn't know how to deal with it, and uh, and rolled in and attacked like maybe her old school. For some reason, the FBI has the manifesto, so that's even weirder. And yeah, it'll it'll just be shoved down the memory hole. I, I would say the uh, the Vegas shooting memory hole, but uh, some some nonsense got exposed with that recently that uh, makes me question what's going on at the FBI even more. Yeah. So that came out yesterday. And what we get is a news drop from the AP stating uh, some FBI documents. And I don't know how old these things are. Some FBI documents indicate that the problem with this guy, Stephen Haddock, was that he he lost a bunch of money. And a bunch of money was like tens of thousands of dollars for a dude who had a bankroll apparently between two and $3 million. So maybe like 1% of his bankroll, like that's not even, that's not even a major swing for people that are serious gamblers. I don't, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a casino before, but being around people that spend money on tables, like taking a swing of 20 or 30% is that's what you do. If you're going to be putting things online, that's what gambling is. It, well, and he was considered to be this professional gambler too, according to the story, which always lends itself to in my mind. The theory was he was, doing something else illegal and laundering the money through the casino. Um, but possible. that was certainly never investigated. So what we waited six years. And I, my question is, what what's the, going on on the other hand? It's always about misdirection. Uh, they're dropping that. Why? What, what else are they trying to uh, distract our attention from with that news drop? Because that is a ill-conceived, <laughs> like, like you compared it to like, yeah, uh, COVID started from a bat in, in Wuhan. Like th- right. that's the level of idiocy that you assume that we have to accept that premise. That That's the mainstream media we're dealing with right now. The the media narratives are, we're going to tell you what the truth is. The sort of Mika Brzezinski statements that, you know, we tell people what to think because we're the real thing. And then we're all just supposed to digest that happily and just choke down these lies. There's no question that that's a ridiculous thing to have waited six years to release. If that was something they wanted to release, they could have done that within a couple of days. And and then everyone would have gone like, mm, even that doesn't add up because a man with no history of violence and um, no particular obsession with weapons suddenly decides to bring, you know, a dozen of them up and, and, and significant, like, I don't know if you've had to cart around uh, ammunition and guns in a big way. I'm sure when you were doing SWAT training, right? Like moving gear is a pain in the butt. And in the older you get, I have to imagine it gets more and more of a pain because at 40 right now, it's not my favorite thing to move all my guns, which I'm currently doing right now and all my ammo, you know, it, I, I woke up sore the next day and I was like, man, like that being said, I have uh, literally like several thousand rounds for every weapon I have. And I've got 
that many weapons. Two. Many that you've got you've oh, got two. I've got I've got dozens of weapons. <laughs> so there was there was a, somebody. I think my mother was asking me. She was like, "How much how much ammo did you just put in that truck?" And I was like, "I don't know, twenty or thirty thousand rounds." And she was like, "Oh, that seems like a lot." And I was like, "I feel like I'm slacking. I don't even know what you're talking about. Like that's." That's a couple of days in a bad outpost, you know, it's like, hopefully I don't live in one of those places where that's going to be a problem. But th- this guy supposedly dragged all those up in multiple trips and then shot at a concert. Yeah. At a country music concert. Because and- he was angry at a casino. The, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's absurd on its face. Um, let, let's do a, uh, well, well, we'll do, we'll save the debrief for the end of it. Uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll roll into your, um, the news you want to share with us about just the, how, how silly the world is. Cause it's kind of lighthearted. Um, in, in the other news, we saw, you know, speaking of absurdities and maybe things that they're trying to distract us from, we saw that President Trump was finally apparently indicted uh, by this grand jury in Manhattan. So this is a, a local DA, even though people in New York think that New York is the center of the world. Nobody who doesn't live in New York thinks that way. Uh, the rest of us don't really care what goes on in New York. Zero times a day do I think about what's happening in New York City, even though people in New York City believe that uh, that's all we think about out in the rest of the world. So this DA, who's a local DA, secured an indictment of some kind and then leaked it. First of all, is that that doesn't seem common to me. I don't remember that being the case. You get a grand jury indictment. You don't let it out until you either serve the process in either a summons or an arrest warrant. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think once you have the indictment, the the seal gets lifted at that point too. And all that information is supposed to be put out publicly. So I I don't know what the whole agenda was in leaking it now, unless they're predicting some sort of lag in time for one reason or another. And, and obviously he wants to get his version of what goes out, you know, any sort of out of context things that he wants or things promoted by the media. Uh, because once that first initial surge of media happens, everything else will that is a correction will be lost in the shuffle. So you've got experience in local law enforcement and federal. So I'm kind of curious about how you're thinking about this, but I listened to Alan Dershowitz who, you know, he's on all the programs at all the times and he has a, a very obviously strong basis in discussing things from a constitutional perspective. His belief is that it'll be immediately dismissed because the statute of limitations has passed. The argument for them going longer and trying to go after it this way was that uh, they had to wait because Trump was not in New York at the time, but Trump is not in New York now. So that doesn't make any sense. They indicted him out of state. And then the other piece is they have to basically claim that there is an underlying crime that his misdemeanor was covering for. Um, and so that's going to be a difficult, you know, path to prove. Obviously, the indictment is much easier to do than than actually proving this case. But if there's a statute of limitations issue, and he, and they're trying to indict him, they you know they've indicted him, but he's not in the state. They're still going to have to get extradition, or he's going to have to hear um, those charges in Florida. Is that correct? Like they would put him in front of a magistrate judge? Or no, I think to- he's going to negotiate uh, going on on his own to New York. I think, uh, as I understand it, he wants that image. Okay. I think that's good for him politically to just portray himself and, and get donations rolling in and that sort of thing. So I think they, they won't have the, you know, this, this unlawful flight to avoid prosecution scenario where they're going to get the feds involved. I think he'll actually just fly in and, and get the, get the image of him, uh, getting his fingers printed and if they're going to even do that. Um, but it's such a, stretch of a charge to begin with. I don't, I don't even know what the protocols are for, for that. Even if it was, there's no statute of limitations on it. I, it, I don't, I don't understand 
how they came to the decision that that was a wise thing that they were going to charge other than they knew they wanted to charge something, you know, find the man, I'll find the crime. Um, And then there's, I think that they probably figure both sides will mutually benefit from this. Um, He's not going to do any time in jail. He probably wants the photo op. And uh, this is going to launch Alvin Bragg's ascension to something else, because certainly being the DA in Manhattan is is a stepping stone. I don't think that's going to be the end game for him. He'll probably write a book and then get uh, Chuck Schumer's Senate seat or something like that. Gross. One of the things, and we're discussing things that are the opposite of what they say. The, uh, the, the political left in the United States loves the federal government. Right. They love the most powerful part of the supremacy clause saying that we're going to come in and do whatever we want. We're going to force gay marriage on every single state. The state's rights are lower. They're subordinate to this overarching federal government. And now what they're trying to claim is that they're going to take a former president who is a federal protectee of the United States Secret Service. Right. And they're going to bring him in and and they're going to do this process to to do even if it's a photo op. Um, I, I cannot imagine the Secret Service being derelict in their duty, they're going to have to treat the entire area like any other former presidential visit. They're going to have to clear it of threats, right? So they're, yeah, they're going to have to go send an advance team to, exactly. to go through the Manhattan DA office to make sure there's no threats, which there might be a lot of actually, if you consider the political leading to that office. Correct. And, and, and then we're setting up a situation where they're going to turn over because he's innocent until proven guilty. He's going to have to be surrounded by Secret Service the whole time. Um, I mean, they might as well just do this thing over Zoom because it's not going to go any further than that. There's there's, there's just no justification to make any of this thing make any sense. But once again, everything is backwards when you start going like, well, you know, in our case, we want the we want Manhattan DA to indict because that's going to show that nobody is above the law, even though there's this basic movement that everybody that they choose is above the law and that the federal government should be able to do whatever it wants. It's it's just all turned on its head in so many different ways. It, uh, it's, it's difficult for me to even process what a Secret Service protectee going into a a uh, you know a, a processing center is going to look like. I, I can't even fathom it at this point. Yeah. I mean, just the, and just the idea of prosecutorial discretion, like if it was legitimate, that 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 crime, if it was legitimate, uh, thing to charge would even ever be charged on anybody and let alone we're going to send the message it's sort of like the, the martha stewart insider training but at least with insider training that's a felony i mean she actually did time for that i don't i don't know what sort of jail sentence they would have you know even if they maxed out trump's uh sentence and he pled guilty or you know was convicted at trial or something like that i don't even know if he would face time in jail i'm, I'm not sure i don't know that the new york's statute on it but you know in light of what we're seeing in the dc district federally i mean i I think i commented this week uh that i was actually surprised that um the uh the doj was honoring miranda uh, in saying that you you can have an attorney because obviously they've thrown out giglio and jenks and brady and attorney client privilege Uh, so so why even give them a attorney at this point yeah no that's true it's 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 just bizarre on every level. And then you, you also figure that, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about a hush money payment for like an aging stripper adult film star who was paid, like paid off by one of his attorneys. It wasn't even paid off by Trump. So it, it, the, the stretch here, and the whole, all the things to go after. 
It's such well, a, and, and I think the, the juice of that squeeze was in 2016 because they got to hang him. Oh, look, he had sex with a porn star. And like that was the reason that that story came out. It wasn't for anything criminal. It was just we're going to try to embarrass him and make it look like a character issue. Same as the the Billy Bush video grabber by the hoo-ha. I mean, that's what happens in these campaigns. Uh, so now, now they, they went all the way back. And we're like, well, wait, maybe there was a crime we could charge. I, I I don't know who's calling shots in these rooms and thinking like, well, that, that's a good idea. Um, but I'm back to, I think they did it because their side wants to be able to say they got it, something done. And then the other side wants to say, look what they did to us, vote for us. And it's just so gross. I hate everything about it. Yeah, I, I agree with that theory. Um, let's, let's talk about something that was done really well this week. And that was, you know, in the worst case scenario, and, and I think this is a parental nightmare on uh, anybody who sends their kids to school has to have this sort of thing that, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, this is the thing. It's some unhinged individual coming into the school where your kids are at, where you're not there to physically be there to protect them, especially guys like you and me. And, and they start shooting. Um, so we've got this transgender female, whatever the heck that means, uh, a woman. Th- this is another piece of it too. Somebody mentioned, and, and I, I think they're correct. Imagine and all the rage of being a uh, a teenage boy, 13, 14, 15 years old, but with all the like the buying power and the sort of physicality and the autonomy of being an, an adult. And she was what, 28 years old, something like that. You know, one of the upsides of male puberty, if there is such a thing, because I think male puberty is pretty awful, like going through it, like it's awkward and it's uncomfortable and, you know, everybody's body changes all the way. But m- moreover, like, there's just moments where you're just furious about all these things because that's what testosterone can do. That's why we see guys who have roid rage. I don't know if you ever worked with dudes that were, you know, juicing, but they're they're very uncomfortable people to be around. They're they're uh, volatile in ways that are not predictable in any way, shape, or form. And then you know that's kind of what we've done with females that are taking these hormones. Like they don't know how to deal with that. The upside to being 14 or 15 is there's like only so much you can do with that. You know what I mean? Like you could go put a hole in your door and you can get hit by your dad or whatever. You know? Yeah. I mean, at least, at least dad can still handle you at that point too. That's it. And, and will most in most houses, yeah. even that is that you just don't have that autonomy to go off and do your own thing. And you're not going to be able to go to a gun store. You know, if you're pit. No. And, and even if she was acting out physically, she was still a, she, and I think that there would, the chances of a physical confrontation from somebody being like, what did you just say to me? is next to nil. So there was never going to be any sort of negative reinforcement on that whole process. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now we've got this, uh, we've got this 28 year old female on male hormones and then this like horrific situation. All right. The, uh, the, the silver lining to any of this is that basically the Nashville police department put on a clinic on what should be taught for all first responders to active shooters um, under sort of the alert process. Were you an alert instructor by chance, or did you just go through the training with SWAT? Uh, no, I went through the training on my own, uh, and then had training with SWAT. And then the bureau wouldn't send me to alert training because I wasn't a t- uh, tactically trained, uh, right, instructor. Yeah. Uh, if you got, if you folks can imagine, the FBI has a bunch of these different stupid hoops you have to jump through, and the hoops are exactly what you'd expect from the feds. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're competent; you have to go check some stupid box, and only the guys that are liked by certain people that get to pay for that training. But uh, all that being said, will you set an expectation of what it really should look like? We're going to go see how it actually got done, which is almost exactly by the book, I think. Um, what is the what is the modus operandi of 
responding to an active shooter, um, what are the challenges, number one, and then what is the goal, number two? Well, so it's a uh, it's quickly uh, evolving situation. So, so right away, you don't know where you have to go into this structure to go address this threat that it is. It's contrary in the response to everything else that you do in law enforcement where Personnel safety is paramount. You know, hey, look, if, if it's not here, we'll come back tomorrow. We'll come back later. Um, here, the preservation of life um, is the utmost focus. So you have to sacrifice your personal safety. You have to sacrifice ideal uh, tactics just in, to, in order to achieve speed, to move to contact because loss of time is loss of life. Um, sorry, not sorry. You got training, you got equipment, you got body armor. You got to go get in a gunfight right now. So, yeah, what is that? What is that sacrifice when it comes to safety? You, you said it, but what does that look like? What are the, the sort of so, things that you may have to do that would? Yeah, you you would um you wouldn't do any sort of threshold assessment where you would stand outside of a door and then pick the optimal way and stage yourself in a way that you could then take one room over and then all right we own this room move to the next room you just have to immediately respond to whatever area you think that the the shooting is going on at so in this case they heard shooting they said and you can actually hear the officer say it's from upstairs so they by that point are bypassing all these doors where you would never that would be a major. Uh, mistake on your part if you're doing just typical close quarter battle uh, where you would just bypass doors and not address them because they're you know, never know what's behind it. They had to move immediately to the contact situation. Uh, it's it's also heart-wrenching because you have to drive past people who might be physically injured and in need of medical aid um, because if you stop for that split second, that could mean somebody else is getting hurt. So you, you they we always prepared for, and we'd have role players that would be there screaming, like, help me, help me, help me. And you just have to ignore it uh, as cold, as hard as it is, because the, the threat is still there. Once the threat is mitigated, then you can, you know, go check back and, and, and help those folks. But it's uh, unlike anything else. Uh, and then I was actually also thinking about us today, as much as uh, best practices are always changing in law enforcement, especially with anything in the tactical, I mean, in, it's just in the time that I was in SWAT, we went from like speed to, oh, oh slow and methodical to, oh, we're going to be outside and call them out. Or now we're going to we're going to be on drones and technology and next we'll have avatars or something. Uh, but since Columbine, man, 25 years or I think about 25 years since Columbine, that right. has been best practices, no change to it. Um, but and and actually, it's probably a good thing because now it's universally around law enforcement agencies. And in the case with Nashville, those guys were squared away. Yeah. So so alert is the standard. It's A L R R T, I believe, is what it's called. I, I don't know what the abbreviation is. Phil may be able to look it up for us. Um, it comes out of uh, San Marcos, Texas, which is Texas State uh, University, um, and it's it's a codified way of taking the lessons from Columbine, essentially and doing what they call direct a threat, right? Like the, the goal is to quickly engage. Uh, do, can you tell people why the goal is to engage as quickly as possible? Like what the most two most likely outcomes are that w when you uh, meet an active shooter with force? You're going to kill them or they're going to kill themselves. That's pretty much it, right? Um, oftentimes we find that like the minute they meet opposition, then these people already have a plan to uh, to take themselves out of the equation. And then the alternative is, is what happened in this particular scenario in Tennessee, where the good guy does the thing that needs to be done. Um, I don't want to give away too much of it if people haven't seen it, if you haven't spent time looking at it, but we'll look at it as, as like law enforcement officers on there. Phil, are you able to uh, throw that thing up and, and kind of 
play for both of us here to take a look at it, or is that something we can't show? No, I, I can show it on the uh, video here, and maybe I can narrate and give you guys kind of a play-by-play, -play, and then we can pause and stop as uh, your ideas come up. Because I think everyone's probably seen the video who listens to this show, but they would probably really appreciate your takes, even like, you know, right down to the scope and, you know, different things like that. So. Well, Fair enough. My, before you even launch it, there's one thing that, because I, I know Kyle talked about this with uh, his uh, first aid uh, uh, podcast, uh, and it, that was this fight or flight, but it's actually freeze as part of that. Um, and I, and I kind of play off of that with, they, they say you're never going to rise to the occasion, you're going to sink to the level of your training. Um, there could have been training, but I also think that there needs to be an addendum for that. You sink to the level of your planning. So when you see the first initial thing that this guy shows up, he has planned what he's going to do. There's a reason that the rifle is staged and he's immediately giving directives. He planned it out in his head for if and when this ever happens, this is what I'm going to do. So our, our two officers that we see the body cam footage from that have been kind of identified as the two shooters and, and heroes of this scenario. One of them, his name is Rex. What's his last name? Engelbright? Engelbert. Engelbert. And then the other one is uh, uh, Michael. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Ooh. I know it's, it's Italian and, and I'm, I'm embarrassed a little bit just because my buddy Mick said that he's uh, he spent time with him. I, I wrote this down the other day. It's like Calibri, but uh, I could be wrong. Um, and sorry about that. Uh, so the, the thing that people who are serious, I think, in law enforcement that are serious in military scenarios do, they look in their downtime and they think, what could go wrong here and what would my response be? And you're constantly wargaming out the scenario. Uh, as you mentioned, this uh, this officer Rex, he comes out and the first thing he does is he pulls a staged rifle quickly. He closes the vehicle and secures it back up so nobody gets access to his weapons. Right? These are these are thoughts you have to have beforehand. You don't necessarily rise to that occasion. You forget things if you don't do it that way. But one of the things they always train you, even at like let's say somewhere as non-tactical as Quantico, is you take the keys for the vehicle when you get out. Right. Because yep. the first thing that happens is your subject gets away from you. They're going to get in your vehicle and drive off. Now they got your vehicle and that's double embarrassment. It's twice the paperwork, as they would say in the bureau. But but moreover, now this is somebody who's been now armed with the vehicle that they didn't have before. So you take things out of the fight by knowing what's in the fight, like knowing the entire situational awareness of it. So fight, flight or freeze. Part of it is, is knowing what you're going to do next. Part of it is planning. Part of it is that tactic. Um, so 100 percent. The other thing is, is this is a guy who was a very serious tool. Um, Phil mentioned it as well. One of the first things that I saw is that this guy has his weapon set up the way that I think law enforcement responses should, at least one person on active shooter detail, should have what they call a low variable power optic, an LVPO. And we mentioned, that we'll actually hear it in the video, but the other officers are aware of this tool. Not everybody needs to have that. Most people need to be with a handgun. They need to be with their abilities to use their hands. A handgun is easily stowed in a holster and secured. A handgun is good because you can open doors and you can move things over. Rifles slow you down in some ways. Most people don't spend enough time with a rifle to be good at it. Guys in SWAT, people that spend time in tactical environments, spend extra time training. But you know, I don't know if you experienced general FBI agents and even uh, general beat cops trying to employ a rifle. It's not impressive, I would say, is a gentle way to say it. you have a different way? No, I, I agree with you. I, I mean, there's probably occasions where I th there, there's no magazine in that rifle right now, just so you know. Right. We've actually seen straight law enforcement officers um, do responses like in, in the state of New Mexico, you know, get involved in a shooting and then check their rifle. And the thing they did was drop the magazine out and rack an empty slide and then go into a conflict with an empty gun. 
Yep. I mean, there's videos of these things happening. And the reason why is because weapons manipulation is not the thing that they spent their time on. They fall to the level of their preparedness, which was none. And they know that that's the tool they're supposed to have, but they don't know how to implement the tool properly. They're better off using the tool that they do know how to implement. And so in the case of this, what we see is really good, really good. The other challenge that uh, that's, that alert helps um, deal with, and I, th- I think it's worth noting on here, is the idea of alert and active shooter response is that you're going to get people from everywhere. When the call goes out that there's an active shooter in a, in a school, in a mall, in a church, Law enforcement entities from all over will respond to it, and you'll get local sheriff's department. You'll get federal agents that are in the area. You'll get the local police department, which is not the same as the sheriff. They may have different radio frequencies. A lot of times they'll have the the mutual aid channels, but what they will not have is always the same tactics. And so what alert does is it fundamentally streamlines the process. Let's not get fancy. We're not going to do run the rabbit. We're not going to do um, you know pieing the corners and all these kind of things or pieing the uh, what do they call the, the slice the pie. There's oh, a name center of, plus 10 center plus 10. So they're not yeah. going to do the different clear tactics that are all, everybody has their own like best practices. And they're always, as you've mentioned, it used to be slow and methodical. Then it was quick. You know, speed is our friend. There, there's always this play back and forth. Alert is the simplest formation. The only thing that I saw that these guys did, and, and I will, I will give them the, you know, I'll buy every one of them a beer for not letting a uh, good be the enemy of, or the, you know, perfect be the enemy of good in this case. They didn't have a, a great formation running down the hallways because sometimes the guys in the rear were actually covering the guys in the front. And at that point, you have to go to the safety rules. Uh, we'll see some of the video, but some of the muzzles actually flag each other a little bit. As you mentioned, so what, actually, in this case? It, it, Better to make cases. a bad decision than no decision. And there, This and there is are, on you, of all and there are ways that you can do those things. If you are still obeying all the safety laws and you break one, as long as you don't break all the safety laws, you're still good. Your finger's off the trigger and you flag your buddy. It's not good. It's not ideal. But I'd rather you get forward and stop someone killing kids. Yeah. So these guys did the thing that needed to be done. And sometimes they they took a little bit of leeway with it because they were moving quickly and they weren't being perfect, but they were definitely good enough. And so that is like, that's the message that should be taken away from it. Go quickly go direct to threat as they as they call it and go stop the killing immediately and if that means you put yourself in harm's way a little bit either from yourself uh you know from your own team or from the shooter as you mentioned bypassing doors and and you know you're assuming that there's basically only threats in that one place where you can hear them which it turns out to be generally speaking statistically that's the case um then, yeah, then and, and and they were going off intel too which uh, the one person that nobody's ever talked about is the woman that's standing out front that meets them she stood yeah. there with an active shooter and she had no cover. And she came out and said, there's a shooter that, that you know, that we've locked down, gave them like the essential. She didn't say there's multiple shooters. She said, there's a shooter. So she could have been mistaken, but obviously like that's valuable intelligence. And she was brave enough to stand out there unarmed and give that to the guys that are coming in to save the day. All right, let's roll some footage. Yeah. So uh, as Steve was just saying, he, he comes up on the woman. Uh, also, let's pause real quick. He uh, just I think people are going to be interested to get you guys hear your take. He uh, he racks around, doesn't he? So he's not he's not rolling like that. Uh, that explain that's, why that's, that's pretty important. standard. Yeah. So most people don't run. Um, this is pretty standard. They call it uh, um, what do they call it? Trunk ready or something to that effect. Yeah. Uh, get, you, just, you don't want it to get set closed because you hit a bump and it sends around through the through the car. Right. But um, at the same time, he remembers in the heat of this moment, he's just spoken to the, the woman. He's racking around, right? If he forgets to do that, what happens about a minute or two later, right? When he presses the trigger. Yeah, he's, he's going to drop he's going to drop a, a, an empty hammer on there. So 
you know, good heads up. This is a thing that this guy has prepared for. He's prepared to take his weapon and put it into, into action. If you're not doing that sort of thing on a regular basis, when you remove it, here's, here's the, one of the rules that they always talk about, know the condition of your weapon. Okay. The Israelis roll around in law enforcement and military operations with, with no round chambered in their handguns. So their first move is always to rack the slide and to rack around in. Um, American law enforcement doesn't do that. Some have safeties. Some know that this is your safety, as they uh, did in uh, the Black Hawk Down movie so famously. But it, it's true. The way that our, our modern striker-filed pistols are are generally concocted, unless you put your finger on the trigger, the round will not go off. These are not like revolvers where you could theoretically slip the hammer and the hammer would hit. Um, it just it can't happen. It, the way that they are built, there's actually a block inside the machine, inside the slide. I don't know how many people understand how their their weapons work, but it's like a nerd function of mine. There's a, a actual part called the striker block, and it only is released under spring tension when you pull the trigger back. So multiple actions have to happen. That's why they're called, you know, that's why the original Glock design was so exciting for people in law enforcement, because you could leave around chambered, you could drop the damn thing down the stairwell. And unless there was enough inertia to actually trigger not just the, uh, the, the trigger backwards to, to have it fall backwards. It actually has to unlock the trigger lock, which is a little piece in the middle of it that will not allow you to pull the trigger without, you know, if just the uh, the momentum of the trigger was going backwards, it will not allow the round to fire. So there's a lot of these different safety mechanisms in. The AR-15 platform is a little different. A lot of departments choose to leave them empty chamber, loaded magazine in. That means you're starting with either 28, which a lot of people will load. What did your SWAT team do? 28? 28. Okay. Or 30. And here's the thing. You know what's really cheap? Springs and magazines. They cost 10 bucks to replace a faulty magazine. It costs two bucks to replace a faulty spring in your magazine. So anybody that's doing those sort of things, like I know there are arguments in front of it. It's even funnier to me that you'd rather have two less rounds and you save yourself $2 in like eight years when the spring is finally worn out. It's one of those fun um, governmental arguments where it's just like, seriously, like I, I know the government doesn't understand what's going on there. Somebody made that policy. I always carry 30, just so you know. Um, I'd rather have two extra rounds because that's why I'm carrying a rifle in the first place. Uh, anyway, so, okay. So they're carrying a, a full magazine. He locks the thing, he, he racks the round and then he's approaching. The thing that I love out here outside is he's yelling, let's go, let's go, let's go. He's putting people into that mindset um, you'll see this on social media all the time. Whenever something is happening or you're moving, you're, you're, you're saying the thing that people need to hear. People always like write out, they're like, let's go, you know, like, <laughs> yes, I see it all the time. It's let's true. go is our gener. It's, it's a thing right now for let's our generation. Go. Yep. People, yep. People between the age of 25 and 50 right now, let's go is like, we're doing the thing, whatever the thing is. It's the same as the, the, the pre nine 11, like let's roll. Mm -hmm. It's, it's the, it's the guys on the, on a uh, flight 93 that said, let's roll. Yes, right. It is. It is. I mean, it's, you just have to start the momentum because that was the problem with Uvalde. Nobody started the momentum. That's right. The whole this situation could be different. One guy. Let's go. This is the this whole video, and it kind of gives me some goosebumps on it. Is a man getting called up to the Super Bowl? This is the Super Bowl of masculinity. You are now about to put your life on the line for kids. It really is. It's the Super Bowl of masculinity. And you didn't know that when you woke up this morning, you didn't know it when you stretched out and put on your uniform. You didn't know it when you rolled into the mall with your family and you were going to freaking, you know, banana Republic, even though you hate it. Cause that's where your wife had to do a return. Cause somebody decided to buy you something on the registry, like all the things, right? You're there and you are now you are called up instantaneously into the super bowl. This guy got the call active shooter. It's super bowl time. And they went out there and played like champions. And that's the thing that is why this video it gives me like a lot of hope, even though it's the worst possible scenario, it could have been so much, so much worse. 
because this person went and did not care about human life. And we got like a bunch of men that basically said, I'm ready to throw myself in the gap right now. And, you know, call it what it is, but it's men that went in that door. Um, doesn't mean it could, it couldn't have been women. It just wasn't, that's not what it was. We saw, we saw dudes going in there doing the thing that they signed up to do. And they're proving to you that what their oath was, was serious. And that's the other piece as you know, our sort of suspendable group likes to say, if somebody is not willing to, if they're not willing to stand up and and maybe lose their job over something, like what are the odds they're willing to lose their life over it? These guys are showing what it's really about. So once again, it's just, it's encouraging to me in a big way. All right, Phil, you're going to do some narration and kind of talk us through it. We'll stop because I've seen this video enough times. Yeah, you'll be able to uh, recite it from memory. So Rex is coming up to the door. He's already passed the woman. He The cavalry's rolling in. And I think he finds out that the door is locked. So heads up move. He gets keys from one of the two people standing outside. I think a man outside. A super, super heads up move. This is one of those things like it saves you from having to breach a bunch of ex you know, interior doors because people can, like, what do we see that happened? That was one of the things that happened in Uvalde, right? Okay. Yeah. They, were, they, they didn't have the keys. So they claimed thing that's interesting off. here is, uh, you know, immediately, as soon as they go in, the fire alarm is going, right? I, mean, I actually like that a lot. I mean, that's as real as it gets right there. Moreover, if they weren't in the right mindset that before they got in the door, like what's, what's that's telling you everything about a fire alarm tells us there's an emergency. There's yeah. something wrong. And side note, uh, one of the children who uh, lost her life was trying to get to the fire alarm to pull it down when she got shot. Yep. She, even at that age, she was trying to do something. That's heart wrenching. Okay. So that's they've already the searched the first door. They're going down the hallway, looking to the door on the right. And so what we'll it. notice is they're, they they're doing what what I learned is uh is, is called rolling thunder. Did you ever did you ever call it that when you were um No, but it sounds sounds pretty sick. So in, in the this is a military tactic of moving quickly down a hallway. And oh. rolling thunder is you're just you're hitting a you're rolling into the room, you're doing the fastest clear possible, you're rolling back out, you're not stacking up and, and going back into the hallway yeah. each time. You're just going. It's, so it's let's go. The guy, attitude. the one officer with the shotgun goes to stack up and he pushed his he pushed them through the door. Yep. Correct. Say, so we're not we doing see, that. Yeah. So Officer Rex um, Engelbert is just literally like sending guys in. He's quarterbacking it right away. I don't know if he's a, I assume he's a tactical uh, trained guy. He's probably on their SWAT team, but I haven't read anything about it. But he has the mindset that knows what's going on. He's, he's looking at the entire thing and he's quarterbacking people, which is so much more important than being the guy who gets to go in first, who gets to breach any given door. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you can speak to this a little bit too. There's a, a rookie sort of mentality when you're like, I want to be the first guy through the door. I want to be the guy that's the breacher. I want to do the thing. The, the really, really serious guy is the guy who's the, you know, the assistant team leader or the team leader who has the most experience in, in pulling himself out of it. He may not get the so-called action, which is kind of what everybody, you know, that is the Super Bowl. But what he does have is, is situational awareness of everything. And he's sending in guys that makes him a force multiplier to be able to to manipulate. He's got now seven guns in the fight and he's just sending each gun in. Each one of these guys is just doing a very small piece of the pie and he's got to see it all. Yeah. I mean, whenever we trained it, I mean, yeah, it was way easier to be first guy through the door because you're just listening to what you're told. You're just automatic. And, and whenever the rep came up to like, all right, you're going to drive the train this time. I would be like, I knew these guys they are my friends. And I was like nervous. Well, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm ready to do that. It's way harder. 
And and you're the one who's you're assuming responsibility. That's the burden of command. I mean, it's just the nature. It doesn't matter whether you're doing law enforcement or military clears. You're the guy that's going to have to send people to do the thing, and they're going to do what you say. You've got to be really good. You got to be on point. And he's he's just he's ice cold when he's running through this stuff. It's so good to watch. Uh, like I said, it's really reassuring. All right, are you still rolling some video here? Yeah. So they've gone through most of the first floor. It looks like, and now they're hitting probably what looks like their first door that leads upstairs. So during that time, they're hearing a lot of they the, uh, they finally heard the gunshots. And what they did is they, there's two instincts. The guys that are clearing rooms are looking to clear rooms because once you get into the track of doing that, that's what they're going to do. They want to just, you know, keep doing that methodical thing because that's what feels good. That's the repetition. Uh, and, and this officer Engelbert like breaks them out of that and he's like sending them up the stairs. And so everybody starts like, they're like, oh yeah. And he's literally, he's the guy in the back sending everybody forward, letting them know where they need to be, which is upstairs engaging the threat. And then what we'll see, are we still rolling through it? Can you just clarify something? Cause you both probably know something about this that most people don't. What instigated the gunfire? Is it the first set of officers coming up upon her or was she this actually shooting in the library? I believe what she did is she was shooting through the window to be able to get, to port the window because she was setting up to ambush anybody coming over that uh, she was setting up an overwatch position. Got it. Okay. So when she shot that, that window was open and she has basically has gone and basically tried to set up so that she can hit responders, which is a pretty heads up move and really, really gross. Yeah. Um, thank God well, these I, guys, they were throwing rounds. Cause I heard one call out that he was reloading. Interesting. So the, yeah, I heard reloading and somebody asked me, like, do you think they were saying she's reloading? So we got to go now. And I was like, no, you call out reloading to give everybody awareness that you're I, I need somebody on my shoulder right now till I can get back up in the fight. So they might have been in a gunfight. I don't know. That's that's an interesting point. And I don't think we've seen enough of that they're, they're going to be exploiting the scene for a while. We'll talk about why the FBI took the manifesto. But, um, you know, the 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 stuff that we can see on the body cam as it is, it looked like she had ported the window that she had broken out. I guess that could have been from, from somebody shooting at her and her not being hit yet. Possibility. Uh, that being said, they get up the stairwell and what you'll see is somebody makes a really heads up call because exchanging gunfire with a handgun, most guys are using iron sights. Their accuracy, particularly in this scenario is going to be low at 15 plus yards. And that shot, what do you think that was? Maybe 20? Yep. Yeah, about from 20, looking at it, it, we're looking at body cams, so we don't have really good perspective, but the depth of it, you're looking at probably a 60 or a 75 foot shot for most people with a handgun. That is not a, a fast, you know, um, direct engagement distance where they're going to be high confidence hits. doesn't mean that it can't be done. I, I feel very comfortable shooting at that distance, but I shoot a red dot. And if you're not shooting a red dot pistol, your, your point of aim and your point of impact is going to be like your, your front sight is covering a big, big distance. So only people that are bullseye shooters that are really good at shooting that distance. And then you got to add the fact that there might be rounds coming back at you. Like it's not a handgun distance for most people, especially not for most low, like law enforcement, the dudes that train at the highest level, maybe, um, that, that are in the, the military and, and are doing these kind of things. And that's their engagement distance. But for most people, once you get outside of that 15 yards, um, that's a pretty comfortable rifle distance going, and most law enforcement distances are, you know, 15 yards is rifle all the way out to about a hundred. And then they don't really get much longer than that for most law enforcement rifle engagements in this country. I'm sure you guys train the same way when you're doing SWAT. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's bill of the range is 50. That's the qual. The, the qual is 50. You're not very often even going beyond that. Um, but yeah, you own 25 yards, especially with an optic and with this guy's optic, that's, that's easy day. 
Yeah. So, so Rex Engelbert in this case, he's running up with, uh, I don't, I didn't see the make on the rifle, but he's carrying a, a vortex razor. You can tell by the color of it. He's got a, a throw lever, which is smart. There's different ones you can use. I use a breakaway version of that, but a similar, I think I have the same exact thing on top of my, my bureau rifle. So this is a really, really good setup. What it does, and if, if you don't know guns, the uh, it's a one to six. So that means one means no magnification. It's just the same power that you normally see. And there's a crosshair in there with a little dot that you could turn on. I don't know if I saw him activate it. It doesn't matter at all. He didn't need it for that sort of uh, environment. Um, but then you have the ability to, to flip it up to six. And that gives you six X magnification for what you're looking at. So your 25 yard shot looks like it's six times closer, uh, which makes things pretty easy to deal with. And I've had, you know, sub two inch groups, one and a half inch groups at 200 yards, five round groups with that exact same setup that he's running with that optic on top of it, you know, benched, obviously like throwing it down on the ground and, and putting a backpack or something, but you can get very, very precise from a long way out with a decent rifle. And I'm sure it was a decent rifle. So he goes into that 20 something yard encounter and he's able to do a very, very precision shot as opposed to like a red dot, like a, like an aim point, like most people do Two MOA means it's covering. What is it covering? Like maybe a six inch. Is that right? No, no. It's the opposite of that. Two inches at a hundred. It'll cover one inch at 50. So probably like a half inch. So even the, the two MOA dot is covering a very small area on that, but he's got the ability of being able to look very, very closely at what he's getting into and taking that shot, which is why somebody yells, I think. We, we debate we debated this I'm pretty he sure the backwards hat guy says uh, lvp push lvp push which is but it means that guy you know that guy's a tackleberry too um because i'm pretty sure he had a red dot but um he in the fog of war went to like i'm a gun nut and recognized that another guy had the tool that they needed to optimize the situation and Set. And again, and back to we're going to quarterback the situation. I don't need to be throwing this round when this guy has the way to end this fight right away and That's pushed right. him up. And he did. And so you see uh, you see Rex basically run through the hole, bypass a half dozen guys and get himself into a you know a angle where he's going to come around the corner, addresses the threat right away and sends rounds that way with the, with this uh, this optic uh, on the rifle. Even if he did, I don't even know if he had it uh, boosted to six. I, I, I run my... So the way I run mine, and, and and this is, I think, the the most optimal scenario. Um, I've tried it. I've tried all the scenarios and all the different uh, optic combinations. But I run a uh, an LVPO on the top, and on top of that, I have an RMR, which is a little red dot. And so I can do anything inside of fifty or anything that's really quick and close. I've got a you know about a two inch mechanical offset, so I'm two inches high. The dot is going to be, you know, if I'm aim if the dot is here, I'm going to hit here, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um you know, just a little bit, I'm going to, my dot's going to be high of my, sh my shot indoors. But, uh, when it comes to a longer shot, you know, and 20 is not long, but it might be the right move when you're running up there, you can literally just jump down and you've got six X magnification. You've got a very precise shot. Great for, you know, hostage scenarios. I've seen a, a law enforcement officer. I think it was in Phoenix who addressed a subject that was holding a gun to a baby, like a one-year-old. And it was his own baby. That was the other wild thing. But this happened maybe two months back. I'm sorry, two years back. And the officer has the same exact setup. He braces it on the edge of the car. He literally gets out, racks the round, jumps up, sees the threat is that there is a gun to the baby's head and he drops the guy with headshots because mm -hmm. he has that confidence at 75 yards, even though he's pulled back far in the fight, that's an easy shot from that distance. So it's just, it's a really powerful tool. And like I said, it shows that he thought about this scenario well before it ever came up. He knew that he was going to have the right tool. I'd be really curious to know if he spent his own money on it or if the department gave it to him. 
either way, it's a heads up move to be able to put that thing into the fight. Um, Phil, what are we, are we looking at the end of this thing coming up? Yeah, we are. So he's uh, obviously behind the other officers. It's probably about a half dozen officers who beat him to the second floor. But as yep. Steve alluded to, and I don't know if it's now or earlier, uh, folks can rewatch the video. Somebody's calling for the LVP, right? So he's uh, sees the officers. He's coming around the corner. He's walking down the hall. They hear the gunshots. He's heading into what looks like like the library area. He's slicing the pie, and now he sees target bang, bang, bang instantaneously. As soon as he lined his sights, he took the shot. Well, how many shots did he take? Like three, two or three. Something. Something to that effect. The other thing that's really heads up is then he goes down off gun and the two officers that are with, these are like your hands guys. These are your responding officers are running up and they're covering down, you know, they, the threat falls. So this, this, and they don't know who this woman is. They don't know anything about her, what she's got going on. But then you see the two officers basically come in and approach really, really quick gun on, uh, you know, start giving commands and things like that. And, uh, they ended up shooting again because it looks like a, it sounds like she had her hand either on the weapon or wasn't releasing, uh, the weapon and they, they got to do what they got to do up that, that close. Uh, but just just textbook for a, an awful situation because aggression wins the day in that scenario. I think every single time that's it's it's pushing it to do something. I used to actually encourage that during uh, emergency medicine. It's like, what is your job? Your job is to do something. Um, yep. And doing doing some action is better than than freezing and trying to figure out what the right action is. Like good enough in this case and they and they just establish you know, momentum i mean because even if you make the wrong call you have enough momentum that you can overcome that it's that instinct to just freeze and then you have paralysis by analysis and that's how you wind up with uvalde where you have these dozens of guys in the hallway that are just sitting there what are we doing what are we doing yeah people always forget what the word inertia is about right but it's it's bodies at rest tend to stay at rest and bodies in motion tend to stay in motion and these guys create that first motion starting from yelling let's go and starting from getting the keys, I mean, everything about this is heads up. Getting the keys, pushing through, sending guys through the door. It's like he's setting the first, even the first door, he's setting the the uh, the precedent that we're not stacking up. Like, And they don't have to know the same tactics. It's like, get in there. And the guy's like, got it. And then everybody starts flowing. And you see him flowing into rooms and flowing out. And they're moving. And the guy who's seeing it all is in the back as it should be. He's the last guy to get to the fight, but he also has the tool that's going to end it right then. So he, and he doesn't hesitate. The minute he's called up, boom, somebody else has the wherewithal to do it. I mean, everything about this is just like, it, it's the opposite of Uvalde in every single time. I saw one of those silly memes. It's like the big muscle guy that's like talking to the, like the blonde girl that's like in the corner of the, of a party or something. And it's like, you know, it's uh, Nashville PD and he's the big muscular guy. And he's like yelling, whatever he's saying at the party. And then it's like, Uvalde is like, eh. and, and you hate to, to, to put that on them. Um, because I know they were probably trying to do the best that they could do right there, but they just, you know, what, what do they always say? They, you know, you expose your ass when you do stuff like just so badly, everyone knows, and it's become a punchline and it's, it, it's, these will be shown side by side for a long, long time. I think in both academies and in tactical schools and in alert trainings for law enforcement officers all over the country, this is how you don't do it. You don't freeze up and you don't wait. You get in there and you stop it because you can stop it right away and you don't let it happen any further. And these guys did it. They did the work. Yep, they did, man. They're, they're heroes, all of them. So we That's, also uh, have uh, Mike's portion. to. I think it's worth going through that real quick because- Yeah, sure. He, describe it. Yeah, the average person uh, might have some questions about you know why he did what he did. So let's take a look. All right, so, so and, all right, you hear what Mike did, but we're going to see it from his body camera. Uh, the face is blurred out here. They're shouting commands. They don't necessarily know what her condition is. 
Rex is kind of like third person walking up. They're pushing weapons away. And then it goes to black. So now we're on Michael Colazzo's body cam footage. He goes right up the stairs right away. I'm not sure what part of the building he's in, but it's pretty clear. It's clear right away. He's going to the second floor. That makes sense. So here's the thing. Uh, they're addressing on multiple floors. Like if you're on a different floor. Okay. The door was locked. He had four. He's like one of four officers. The door was locked. They're going back downstairs. Got it. Interesting. They find an open door on the first floor. Now there's probably six officers at this point. Looks like they're maybe in a gymnasium. That's right. Yeah, now the whole cavalry's here. There's like almost a dozen guys. Okay, now they're, they've caught up with Rex's team in that kind of central location. It looks like, you know, you check in with the secretary if you're late for school. <laughs> Lots of locked doors. They check, check in bathrooms. Same first floor. Fire alarm's still going off. They're pausing for a moment here, but I think it's pretty clear they're about to go upstairs. Yep, so up the stairwell. Mike's got two, three got officers in front of him. He's pushing them through. Okay, now they're saying shots fired. So this will be the point where they're kind of pinned down waiting for Rex to show up. So they're kind of walking to that door that everybody's seen. I said library before. I'm not sure what it is, but it's kind of like an upstairs rotunda. And here's Rex on the left. Bang, bang, bang. So then Michael's got a handgun. He kind of walks up second, and he shoots four times. And he's shouting, yeah, he, stop moving, stop moving. He's yeah, coming he, in from the right. There's another officer that came in from the left, and the two of them basically moved in, kind of pinched in. Uh, which put the rifle out of play because they were downrange at that point. Yep, and you can see the broken and, glass. He's saying suspect down, suspect hey, down. So I think from, uh, you know, the general population standpoint, like their, their question would be, hey, Rex has already shot this person. Why did Mike have to shoot him? <laughs> well, you don't you don't know. I mean, it's the, so they you can tell from the officer who has the shotgun who again good on him and good on everybody else he's the only one giving his uh giving verbal commands where the temptation is going to be for like half a dozen dudes to be screaming different things at the same time at that point you have to assume the threat is going to be alive and, and responsive uh, but they're saying so he was saying get your hand away from the weapon and you, at that point you have to you have to take that shot because you, it's still a threat until you've confirmed that that's no longer a threat i think that's yeah so, so there's there's two ways to look at this thing. Uh, unlike what Joe Biden has said about the way that uh, the five five six or the two two three round hits the body, it doesn't immediately enter and blow up into a uh, you know demolition derby. It doesn't take lungs out of the body when you hit somebody with a nine millimeter. This is not the way firearms work. It's a kinetic uh, you know action. It is a, a projectile that enters the body. It creates a permanent and then also a temporary wound cavity. The permanent cavity is usually the size of the round and whatever the whatever it opens up to. The uh, the temporary cavity is where, like, when things hit, they actually cause a, an expansion. This can cause, you know, blood vessels to burst and things like that. But, but absent what we would call wounds incompatible with life, that means like an open head. That means, uh, you know, a chest cavity that's completely exposed and like there's, you know, the heart's ripped out. There, there are things that you can see, and and sometimes do happen in big shootings where you will know that the wound is now incompatible with life. Um, 
there's ways that medics and, and I've done this as a as a paramedic too, so I can speak to this. There are there are certain categories of wounds that you can walk up. And if there's like brain material on the ground, you can usually diagnose that as as being dead, as deceased. That is not the case. Every state has its own rules on it. In Texas, I actually had to take people, unless I saw that, you know, um, a decapitation at, a, at a, an ambulance, uh, an accident scene. You could go, okay, I can declare this person dead. Otherwise, you got to wait for the coroner to show up. You got to wait for a medical examiner, or you've got to wait for a physician in an ER to declare them dead. So the officers are approaching somebody. Five, five, six rounds make very, very small holes. Have you ever had to treat a, a five, five, six wound, by the way, Steve? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Very, very small, can disappear in the body. Literally, you can go looking for them and there's not always an exit wound. So you can literally see like, it's like a pinhole. Um, it's a 22 caliber hole that will enter the skin. Say, it looks like a 22, right? Okay. It's, well, that's how it enters. It, it looks like nothing. Um, I've had to like pull them apart to find them. If people have like uh, fat on their skin or they have like body hair, it easily can disappear and it doesn't always bleed. So you can have a 22 wound that like, you know, five or six of them in it and like they won't appear unless they actually blow something out. So um, unless there's a significant exit wound and blood on the back end. So people were speculating, oh, this is a fake video. This is a training scenario. There's no blood. Why are there no blood everywhere? You watch too much Hollywood movies. That's not the way that people get shot. Uh, people can be, you know, can be fatally wounded. A, a, a guy that was law enforcement confrontation shot right in the chest and fatally wounded one shot. Couldn't even find the bullet hole. It was very, very difficult to find it. It was hidden underneath the left nipple. And he had his heart completely destroyed with the shot. So it was a one-shot kill. We couldn't tell. We worked him like he was alive for 35 minutes. And when we got there, they actually opened up his chest and found that he had bled out into his own chest cavity. No exit wound. So no blood spilled at all. But the guy probably lost like a liter and a half of blood inside of his lungs uh, and, and you know displaced his lungs with, a, uh, you know, uh, with that bleeding. So these things can happen in ways that you wouldn't see. So the officer has to approach and assume that this person without wounds incompatible with life is still alive. And a lot of times people still move. Like it's not the movies where somebody's pulling a ripcord behind you and you fly backwards like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, like, you know, the last action hero. Realistically speaking, the problem that most um, special operations troops had with the 556 round, which is why things like 300 blackout and why 762 by 39 and, um, you know, 762 by um, 51, which is the 762 NATO round, why those things were being used in confrontations was people would get hit with these rounds and get back up all the time, especially if they were hopped up on any kind of drugs. So officers know they've been trained, they've been told the threat, it's not to shoot to kill, it's to shoot to stop the threat. And that means they have to be stopped moving. They don't have a hand on a weapon, either either obeying commands at this point and being and docile, or they're not obeying commands and you have to treat them as though they're still hostile until they they prove otherwise. So I think these guys did a great job on every single part of it. And the guys having the wherewithal to to push forward, which which needed to happen, there's a you know, they kept that momentum going, which started early and it never stopped until they basically had this person incapacitated and in custody and or deceased. It's just, I mean, it's it's textbook stuff. Every every level of it is the way you do a, uh, a an active shooter. You just push. They have to, and these guys did a great job. Yeah. Any <laughs> any any other concerns about what we saw there, Phil? No, I was playing devil's advocate just in case we uh, get any hate mail. But I think it my my devil's advocate uh, you know argument there really elicited what we needed to hear. So thanks for filling that in. No, great job by all. So we're we're kind of. Um, we're winging it in some ways, as you probably can tell from the technology, because we're not sitting in our normal space. I'm sitting in a hotel room and I'm, I'm on the road, which is I'm very grateful for Steve joining me. I'm going to, this is the reason why I actually had Steve join me. Here's something to kind of leave on a light note for the weekend. Um, 
the FBI is now doing finger painting, right? And we have Miss Lippy. I've I've always said that the uh, the assistant what's her name? She's the executive assistant director of Human Resources Branch, which is uh, Jennifer Moore. This is the woman that suspended you and I. Is a lot like Miss Lippy from Billy Madison. Uh, who is famously the kindergarten teacher in the Adam Sandler movie that is teaching kindergarten when he has to go back as a grown up and he steps into the, you know, he steps into the uh, preschool or the kindergarten class rather while all the kids are at recess because he doesn't want to play with them. And she's like putting glue on her face. She's putting it and she's eating it maybe. And she's got a macaroni necklace and she's dancing and doing this like Reiki thing. And she's a weirdo, but she's, you know, kind of what I remember kindergarten teachers being kind of silly. She actually is, you know, mildly pretty and she's sweet and she has kind of a sick, sweet way of talking about things. And she talks about puppies and she does kindergarten stuff. Um, my kindergarten teacher's name was Mrs. Brazell, and she actually looked like Miss Lippy. She wasn't crazy. She was just a really, really nice lady. So unlike the, the really, really nice lady, this is the kooky Dukes version of the nice lady. And that's who's running the FBI security division and the human resource department and the training division who recently canceled a town hall meeting, Right. That was scheduled for all employees to be able to see what's going on at human resources. And instead had this thing sent out that you're going to read to us that I haven't read yet. Um, you said you wanted a cold response to it. I'm ready for it whenever you're ready. All right. All right. So just so sec D, my, my favorite peeps over there who investigated uh, my security clearance and your security clearance to, to see if we were worthy of having it. So uh, I, have, uh, I have a mole there and uh, I was I received this. So I'll read it to you. To promote health and wellness in the workplace, the Security Division Employee Assistance Program team invites all SECD personnel at Patriots Plaza 2 to participate in the following events being hosted in the months of April and May. And then it lists uh, seven events. They're going to be happening 1230 to 1 p.m. on these dates that are in April and May. Um, the, uh, the four types of events are as follows. One, National Walking Day. Meet mm -hmm. at the entrance of Patriots Plaza 2 for a short walk that will help you to get to know your colleagues and return to your work with a renewed sense of productivity. Number two, office yoga. Meet at Patriots Plaza 2, room 405 A and B to be led in a series of simple movements to strengthen and stretch the whole body while seated in a chair. No prior yoga experience or a mat is required. So you don't even oh, have to get out of your chair. It's chair yoga. Share yoga. Number three, lunch and coloring. Meet at Patriots Plaza 2, rooms 405 A and B for a fun series of coloring sessions during lunch that will let you see your colleagues' artistic sides. All supplies will be provided. Number four, National Creativity Day. Meet at Patriots Plaza 2, rooms 405A for a painting class that will help you to get to know your colleagues and unleash your creativity. All supplies will be provided, but space is limited. This is your thoughts. Um, this is paid FBI employees on duty doing this, correct? Yes, 1230 to 1 p.m. Uh, Wednesday, a Thursday, a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Wednesday. So during all the week. Wait. Your FBI that we all pay for is going to do painting and chair yoga and holding hands, walking, and what's the last one? Coloring books. Coloring books. So I would say that this is a fake, except 
one, I, I know the FBI, so I, I know it's real. Uh, but two, Phil shared something really awful about it the other day. <laughs> this is not the only time this has ever happened. This isn't even a new idea in the Bureau. Phil, when you were working, what was the name of the headquarters unit you worked for? Uh, I was in CERG. And maybe I don't want to get too specific, but CERG stands for- I'll get real specific. Huh? <laughs> they it was, it was a unit that did surveillance training and added resources. So- yeah, there was a, a unit chief there who'd been the boss for quite a while, and she thought it was a great idea to put coloring books out to uh, color away the stress. And the three agents in the building got a great kick out of this, but they were the only ones who found it amusing. Everyone else thought it was great. And there was a box of crayons, like the Crayola 64, every color. And uh, there were I opened them to check, and there were actual people who had colored in those things. Yeah, that was the next question I had. So thanks. So your FBI employees are spending their time on duty to just relieve the stress of being a highly paid, underworked government employee by coloring or finger painting. Is there going to be any glue eating, do you think, like real Miss Lippy style? Or is that going to be next year after the weaponization committee starts uh, pulling people in for testimonies? Yeah, I, I think that the the questions that that should be raised at that town hall uh, should uh, should Trunk Jenny ever decide to follow through on it. That think that you know that needs to be there. What other activities can we have? Can we can we have Jenga, or or maybe cornhole? I mean, I I know you'd have to get out of your chair to do that, but no, cornhole uh, office cornhole in in your chair. It has to be. In your these chair. are not serious people. They are charged with. Uh, supposedly monitoring whether or not folks like you and I are worthy of having top security clearances um, to you know do the work of the American people. Um, and apparently that's too stressful for them. They need to veg out and uh, see if that, you know, that color uh, is orange, red or red, orange, what would be the better shade? Yeah. Thanks, Steve. You always have a very precise way of making me disgusted about this stuff. Where can people uh, find this uh, this letter, which I assume you're going to make public, and where can they uh, follow you? Uh, you can find both on Twitter, at Real Steve Friend. Um, I will post on Troop as well, at Real underscore Steve Friend. Making it complicated. Are, human, uh, are you still shadow banned? Uh, it said just no, but uh, you know, I, I, on a good day, I pick up one or two uh, followers, so I, I don't know if that the, my, my resources is accurate. Are you search banned? I, I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I always go to the same resource and it says I'm not, but at the same time, like I, I look at the analytics and I, I'm pretty sure that you know, the only time I get into four digits of, uh, of views is when you share my stuff. I'll keep doing it. That's what we're going to do. Uh, I never see your stuff come across my feed. So you got to keep telling me that's why you come on here. Uh, thanks for doing what you're doing. Thanks for, uh, Thanks for sharing this information. You can hawk your book if you want to, because I know that's uh, been growing on the Amazon list. Yeah, hoping to. Uh, we're going to start the PR campaign, True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to FBI Whistleblower. It is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, and uh, hopefully going to be uh, doing the, the media circuit a little bit more to, to advertise it. All right. Um, we will put the links in the description, folks. If you want to buy Steve's book, if you want to follow him, you should. Um, you can follow me on all social platforms at Kyle Serafin. You've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show for this Friday, the 31st of March. As I said, uh, family in flux right now. We are moving. We will be in a totally new location shortly in uh, the great state of Texas, which has been a place I have literally moved seven times. I counted them last night. Seven times. It's my seventh move back to the state of Texas 
Very, very strange. Um, maybe I should just get the message that I'm supposed to stick around and hang out in Texas. So um, if you uh, liked what you heard, please share and subscribe. You can share it uh, to any of your friends. We are on Apple. We are on Spotify. We are on iHeartRadio. We are on about a dozen other audio platforms, and we are video on Rumble. You'll always find them on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And speaking of Mondays, we are going to have probably a two-part interview again um, with our friend Kurt Suzdak. He's an FBI whistleblower. He is a retired FBI supervisory special agent, and he is an attorney that works in uh, the cybersphere. And he wrote the FBI whistleblower handbook. He gives me, uh, first of all, he makes me laugh. And so we had a pretty good fun conversation laughing, but also probably like the least hopeful interview that I've done about the FBI. I think you'll understand why if you watched it. So tune in on Monday, it'll be available very early. If you are an early riser on the East coast and you can uh, download it and listen to it throughout the week, we might be breaking it up into two days only because I think I'm going to be moving on Wednesday as well. So we'll give you, it's, it's pretty long too. It's almost three hours again. So once again, thanks so much for joining us today. And we will see you again after the weekend for our interview with Kurt Suzdak. Thanks so much, y'all. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.